Okay, Mark, why don't you open for us today? This is our fourth session on hermeneutics, and if you would open in prayer for us. All right, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are, for what you've done and what you're doing for us, uh, teaching us your word, teaching us your ways, helping us to better understand what you have revealed to us. Father, we pray your blessing upon this uh, class time uh, this evening. Uh, We look forward to uh, getting better and better to know you. Help us to apply these things that we learn. We pray for uh, Dr. Ray that he will be uh, poised in in, in, uh, presenting the material that, that he's done. And we look forward to all the classmates being able to join us. So, Father, we just continue to pray that your blessing will be upon us as we study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I noticed you got stumped there, not knowing <laughs> so many things to pray about that you just couldn't limit it. But anyway, session number four, what I'd like to do today is complete our portion on hermeneutics, and that'll involve uh, the last part of the principles that we started last time, looking at the essential principles of hermeneutics. And we'll conclude by looking at important principles. I kind of separate them out without these essential principles. Basically, we don't have the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. So that's why I call them essential. And we looked at the first, what was it, five of them or four of them last time. And we're looking at uh, another one today, very, very important. I'd like to complete it, and then we'll take a look at other, not as essential, but still very, very important. Those primarily came about, some of them, as results of mistakes that were made within the church historically, and they were kind of added to the group of hermeneutical principles to kind of help deal with some of the the problems that arose in the church in earlier times. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. So hermeneutics, I gave you a pretty good introduction to the whole area of hermeneutics that include a description, broad description. We use hermeneutics all the time. Don't think about it. We're constantly interpreting messages that we receive from others. Those messages sometimes are misunderstood. And that's misunderstood because we've missed out on perhaps a particular hermeneutical principle. So the reason It's important to understand hermeneutics is to be able to properly interpret the messages that we get all the time. We read things. We listen to sermons. Hermeneutics is involved in all of that. We don't think about it because generally everything that we do is in English, and it's not as obvious that we have a need. But when we come to things like Scripture, 
that was written thousands of years from our time frame and in languages that we are not familiar with and dealing with cultures that are different from our culture, uh, we're impressed with a need to have a set of standards or principles that help us along the lines of interpreting the Bible. So it's more obvious when we come to areas like the studying of Scripture to take a look at what hermeneutics is all about. So that's what this course deals with. So it's the science and art of interpretation. Science, we're dealing with the principles that are involved in hermeneutics. And after we complete that, we'll begin today in the area of what, call, what is called technically exegesis. But because we're only going to use the English text, this is more of an introductory course. We call it Bible study methods. I take it that the principles are the same. The approach is the same. The process is the same, except technically when we do exegesis, we're dealing with the original languages, and we utilize all of the resources that are available to us to interpret biblical texts. But because we don't have the background in terms of this course with the, of the languages, we limit it to English, so we'll use a translation, and most of the processes are, are actually the same. In fact, I use a lot of the same slides in teaching a course on Greek exegesis after the first year introductory course that Greek students take. So that's the art portion, and it takes a skill, it takes development, it takes time, it takes a little bit of diligence to develop the skill of interpreting scriptures on your own. Most believers don't get into it, unfortunately. But I would encourage you all to encourage those that you have a ministry with to learn not only hermeneutics, but the principles involved in studying God's word. And you should, by the time you have completed this course, have plenty to be able to pass on to others as well, to encourage them to get into the word for themselves. So after somewhat of a lengthy introduction, we started to get into the area of principles that are related to the grammatical, historical, contextual method. We call it grammatical, historical, contextual because it summarizes the three prominent essential principles. We talked about the linguistic principle that deals with all of the areas of language. So that's where we come up with the idea of grammatical. In other words, we deal with language. And I gave you a little introduction to language. This is the means that God has chosen to communicate to us. So language is very important. I also told you last time that history and the Bible are intertwined, interrelated. And I even made the point that history is actually based, secular history is actually based on biblical history. The secularist is unaware of it, 
But in reality, I think biblical history is real history and secular history fits in somewhere. God revealed himself in time over the centuries, beginning very early. In fact, we could even say he revealed himself to Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And what we have in the Bible represents at least a picture of some of that revelation. It may, there, obviously there was far more than what we have recorded in the book of Genesis. So history is very, very important. So we call it grammatical historical, and that's the historical principle. And because of the importance of context, we call it grammatical historical context. So from the framework of context, within that we attempt to understand what God has revealed. So we call it the grammatical, historical, contextual method, or more commonly, we refer to it as the literal method. And as we concluded last time, the literal method does not exclude non-literal language. In fact, we were looking at the principle that deals with that, that we call the metaphorical principle. So we also looked at the cultural principle, similar to the historical, except more specific, dealing with the different cultures. When we study a passage, we need to be aware of the cultural implications within any given passage. Some passages refer to cultural elements that are far different from the culture in which we live in. So a little familiarity with that background will help us to understand a passage. And fifthly, we began, I gave you a little introduction to the metaphorical principle, so I'd like to complete that and give you several examples of metaphorical language. There are many conventions or metaphor, metaphorical usages in the Bible. I referred to Bullinger's book, where he, in his table of contents, lists 200 categories of figures of speech or figurative language or non-literal language. And within the book, he gives over 8,000 illustrations from Scripture. It's not a book with a lot of text in it. In fact, very little. It's just a book with example after example after example within these different categories And these examples are of figurative language. So the table of context, contest text, 28 pages worth, because so many categories. And the book itself is over 1,100 pages in all of many, many examples. So the Bible is full of metaphorical language. So we can state the principle We want to interpret according to appropriate metaphorical conventions. And many of these figures of speech, many of these non-literal devices or words or or concepts have very well-known and well-established conventions. In other words, we can describe them in some detail, and we will. And from that, we can uh, use those insights 
in understanding what is being communicated by the use of metaphorical language. I gave the example to not only introduce the concept of interpreting kind of broadly, uh, we talked about symbols themselves, and I started off with it not because it's necessarily the most common in Scripture, but because it vividly illustrates uh, a way that we should approach all metaphorical language And when I was describing symbols, I gave you the example of the way that we use symbols in our culture. By way of analogy, the writers of Scripture also use symbols as well. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these again, but if you remember, I gave you the example of a well-known set of symbols, E equals MC squared. And again, you interpret that within its context. And if you're talking about Physics and Einstein, then it's a well-established formula. You can't make E mean whatever you want it to mean. You can't make M mean what you want it to mean. The originator or the formulator of this formula assigned meaning to each of the symbols here, including the equal sign, including the two. And we went over the details of that last time. I gave you several other examples, context of geometry, a context of chemistry, context of trigonometry, dynamics. I gave you two examples from dynamics, velocity, and acceleration. And notice the A in that context is different from the A in the geometry context of A equals pi r squared. The main point I was trying to make is... When we approach symbols in the Bible, they have an intended meaning within their context, and the authors sometimes give you clues, and in fact, I gave you the illustration from the book of Revelation, where Jesus himself interprets a couple of symbols in that passage. He gives the meaning that he intended by using that symbol. So, in interpreting symbols, this is still review, they have definite meaning assigned by the author, and we don't have the freedom to impose a meaning, or we don't have the flexibility to to add ideas that the original author did not intend. So, the goal, even in interpreting Non-literal language, metaphorical language, is to discern what the original author intended. And within the context, he'll give us enough clues generally that most symbols and most metaphorical language can be understood even thousands of years after the writing. In some cases, the Bible interprets these for us. I gave you the example from Revelation, but there's others as well. And I mentioned that a few of them are uninterpreted, but again, within the context and sometimes within the culture. I gave you an example from culture where understanding the culture of the language that was used in Revelation 14 will help you to interpret metaphorical language in that context. 
sometimes the Old Testament is helpful because, especially in books like the book of Revelation that draw heavily from the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and other passages, sometimes the Old Testament is helpful as well. So look for clues from the Bible itself, clues from the culture, clues within the context to interpret not only symbols, but all metaphorical language. And he gave you the example of the possibility of one writer using one symbol and another writer using the same symbol, but because of the difference in context and the difference of intent by the author, that particular symbol that I gave you the example of means almost two diametrically opposed ideas. The figure or the symbol of a lion that we talked about could be referring to Christ, and Peter uses it to refer to Satan himself. But uh, that gives you a little bit of a introduction and also a little explanation on how do we interpret symbols. There's a whole area of other kinds. We could call these figurative language that uses comparisons. And if you go to Bollinger, you'll find out that he includes several. I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, by the way, symbols, go, uh, before we get to, to comparisons or figurative language that uses comparison, I should comment that sometimes numbers in Scripture can be used symbolically, but you need to be very careful. Uh, if there's some evidence from the context and you can support it from the context, uh, sometimes numbers carry symbolism as well. For example, the, the number seven, particularly in the book of Revelation, seems to have more significance than simply a numerical value, in other words, seven things. But John seems to group things in groups of seven, and theologians have have observed that the number seven, for example, may have a symbolic idea of completeness or perfection, but that's not the case in every context, and certainly not the case even in the book of Revelation. And by the way, I've exegeted through the entire book of Revelation, and one of the things I paid attention to was whether or not the numbers were used symbolically. And you have to be very careful here. I I believe that every number that I came across in the book of Revelation is used primarily and first of all in a very literal way. In other words, when it says seven, it means seven. When it means 200 million, it means 200 million, not simply a large number. So numbers, first and foremost, I take them in the book of Revelation at least literally. And if they carry symbolism beyond that, uh, that's a little bit more less certain, and uh, some people don't want to go any further than that. But if you can support it with details in the context, then you might observe numbers like seven. Others 
assign like the number 40 to the idea of testing because it seems to occur in scripture frequently in a context of of uh, testing for example the 40 years in the wilderness uh, that probably sets maybe the first pattern if in case that if 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 that is in fact the case but be very careful with assigning symbolic numbers to no, or symbolic meaning to numbers uh, there are there are certain terms that sometimes and places in scripture that seem to be used and again I'm talking about the book of revelation they're used symbolically like the city of babylon i think john gives a few clues in the context that he may be referring not only to the city of Babylon in the future, but it also carries a lot of the baggage that the history of Babylon has with it, and the idea of Babylon and Babylonianism in the book of Revelation has something of symbolic significance as well. There are some phrases that seem to be symbolic as well in scripture, like the occurrence of sackcloth and and ashes always seem to be in the context of mourning or deep depression, dejection, that idea. So sitting in dust and ashes probably was literal in the context, but it also carries the idea associating itself with mourning. Tearing one's clothing, similarly symbolizing grief. The tearing of clothes, uh, an expression of anger. Casting off dust from one's feet. Uh, carries the idea of abandoning situations or cities, that sort of thing. So, there are symbols that go beyond just individual words, sometimes numbers, sometimes cities, sometimes even phrases or actions. But next, the next category are figures that use comparison. Probably the, the most common is what's called a simile. And the reason that's so common is because uh, we use it in our culture as well. We commonly use similes, very frequently. And a simile, you have two things that may not be similar or like, but you compare them to one another by using the word like or as. And an example, First Peter one twenty four. Peter describing humanity, basically, he says, all flesh is like grass. The word flesh there referring to humans, people. But he's comparing people to grass. In other words, how temporal, how how fleeting mankind is and the things of mankind, all flesh is like grass. But the identification of simile here is very easy because you find the word like or as. Uh, the rest of the verse says, and all its glory like the flower of grass. Again, something that 
is here today and gone tomorrow. But you have the explicit expression. Very similar to simile is what's called metaphor, where it's not explicit, but it's more implicit. An example of metaphor, and by the way, Peter seems to be quoting in 1 Peter 1.24 out of a passage, I think out of Isaiah, Isaiah 40. Yes, Isaiah 40, verse 6, where Isaiah presents the same idea, but he does it as a metaphor. Peter turns it into a simile. But both of them carry the same idea. In other words, there's a comparison between the two. Isaiah says, all flesh is grass leaving out the like, so it's more implicit. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like, now he makes the other one a a simile, like the flower of the field. And that's where Peter gets, gets that concept. So that's metaphor and simile, and these are very common in our culture as well. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then throughout the psalm, the imagery of a shepherd is portrayed. The the Lord as a shepherd, that's a metaphor. Comparing the Lord to someone that protects, someone that cares for, someone that feeds, someone that heals, someone that comforts. All of the actions of a literal shepherd are in view in the use of that metaphor. So the Bible uses simile and metaphor probably more commonly than anything else. And by the way, I used symbols at the beginning mainly to introduce the whole concept of metaphorical language. But now I've got these more prioritized. There are more comparisons using either simile or metaphor and other devices than probably any other areas of figurative language. There are also figures that involve substitutions. And what I mean by that is substituting one thing for another. And one of the kinds of substitutions is what's called personification. And personification is a literary device that we use today as well. And this is to attribute personality to something that is inanimate or non-personal. So attributing personality to something inanimate or non-personal. Proverbs 8. Are you familiar with uh, Proverbs 8? And throughout that chapter... The writer is describing wisdom, and wisdom is personified as what? Anyone remember Proverbs 8? In other words, giving personality to wisdom, but a particular personal idea. Anyone remember? Yeah, this is Mark Ray. She's personified as a woman. Exactly. Wisdom is personified as a woman. woman. Exactly. That's personification. In other words, wisdom, kind of an abstract idea, abstract concept, 
is now made more concrete, if you will, by the use of personification, taking on some of the characteristics of of a woman, elevating woman, by the way. In 1 Corinthians 15:55, Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your, your sting? Paul is talking to death. How do you talk to death? He's personifying death as if death is standing right in front of him and he's having a conversation and he's asking death these questions. Well, that's the use of personification. Genesis 4.10, uh, the Lord himself uses personification. When he's talking to Cain, he says, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Well, have you ever seen blood speak or cry out? Well, that's the use of personification. So as you can see, you can see it in the New Testament. You can find it in the Old Testament. And these are very common uh, metaphorical devices, figures of speech, literary devices that Scripture uses of non-literal language. So personification is very, very common as well. I'm sure you've heard of something similar to personification, slightly different, called anthropomorphism. Now, it's more specific in that you have the substituting of something that is not human, but portraying it in human terms, or ascribing human form or attributes to a being or a thing that is not human. And what's very common in Scripture is in reference to God himself. Uh, there's many anthropoform- anthropomorphisms relating to God, and I've just got a list of them. I'll just give you a list and a few of the scriptures of them. For example, references are made to the face of God in Psalm 17.2. Well, God doesn't have a face. God is spirit, at least the first person, and God in his essence does not have a face. He's also referred to in Matthew 4.4 by Jesus, the mouth, proceeding out of the mouth of the Lord, quoting out of Deuteronomy. God is referred to as having an arm in Psalm 134.12, fingers in Psalm 8.3, listening with an ear in Psalm 31.2, having eyes in 2 Chronicles 16.9, and very commonly, the heart of God, 1 Samuel 13, 14. And references like when Moses saw the back parts. Does God have back parts? Well, Moses saw them, or at least that's what the text reports. Probably a description using anthropomorphism. You could also even refer not only to body parts, but things that are characteristics of humans as opposed to God, oftentimes God remembers certain things. Does that mean that God forgets? Well, I think that's an anthropomorphism. In other words, trying to communicate in a way that helps us to relate because we understand what we are like, and it helps us to understand something of what God is like. God doesn't forget 
because he is omniscient and has all knowledge and he never forgets. But he's portrayed as forgetting, giving the idea similarly, similar to what we would in terms of forgetting sin. In other words, he puts it away from him or does not deal with us in terms of our sin. And, in fact, there's phrases that refers to God as forgetting sin itself, particularly. So, anthropomorphism is also very, very common in many of the references to God, and particularly in the book of Genesis, when it talks about God relaying or relating to Adam and Eve as he speaks and communicates to them. There's another figure of speech using substitution. We call that metonymy. We use that in our culture as well. Metonymy is the substitution of one word for another to make it more vivid or more concrete. Uh, An example that we use in our culture, you'll hear commentators on, on the news say, well, The decisions that came out of the White House today were such and such. Well, do decisions come out of the White House? In other words, did the House speak and these decisions come out? Well, the substitution there is the White House represents people within the administration. So instead of saying the people from the White House or in the administration or a particular official, it refers broadly to the White House or maybe even more specifically referring to the president himself. That's metonymy. So we use it today. In fact, a lot of these we use today as well. You've heard the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, how is the pen mightier than the sword? I think pen here is substituted for the power of words or the power of written language or the power of uh, communicating verbally, but it uses pen as a substitute for this other idea of communication. So scripture uses metonymy, Proverbs 12, 18. The last part of the verse says, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Well, is there in saliva an antiseptic there? Or, you know, what, you know, what, you take that literally? No, it's using a figure here. The tongue, using metonymy, is substituted for uh, an action of healing, in other words, or, or words of healing, words of comfort, words that uh, promote well-being. So the tongue is substituted for that idea. Uh, Jeremiah 18.18. 18. I think Jeremiah is speaking here, if I remember right. It says, come on and let us strike at him with our tongue. Very similar. Now, it gives the kind of the visual picture, if you carry it literally, of fighting with the tongue as if you had a sword, rather than 
what it stands for. So you don't interpret it literally. You interpret it as the use of metonymy. So the striking is with words. In other words, we're going to lash out in a certain way. We're going to confront. We're going to attack using words. So that's metonymy. And there's lots of other examples that we could use. Uh, Matthew, one from the New Testament, Matthew 3, 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. Now, did the city go out to him? Or is the city, by metonymy, put in the place of the people? Obviously, the people of Jerusalem, rather than the city itself. The buildings didn't go out. The walls didn't go out, etc. So, that's the use of substitution. There's what's called Hendaides. And we don't use this one as commonly, but there's several examples that Bible interpreters observe in Scripture. And again, the book that I referred to gives lots of examples as well. Hendaides is the substituting of two coordinated terms, coordinated with and. So substituting the two coordinating terms for a single concept in which one element defines the other. In other words, the two words go together to kind of convey one idea. But they're put together side by side, separated by and. Rather than two ideas, if it's truly Hendaides, it's one idea coordinated by two different words. An example of that might be in Genesis 3.16 when God pronounced condemnation on the woman he says pain and and in the Hebrew there's the Vav pain and childbearing he's probably not talking about two different things but he's probably combining the two and the two coordinated together conveys the idea of painful childbirth or within the midst of childbirth it's going to be very painful after sin. And this is part of the curse on on mankind. So pain and childbearing, two separate ideas coordinated together to convey one uh, singular idea. Philippians 2.17 might be another one. Now some of these are debated. Uh, some scholars might try to convey two ideas, but if it in, in fact it is Hendaides, if this is what Paul intended in Philippians 2.15, when he says sacrifice and service, he may be conveying the idea of sacrificial serving. One idea put together by two separate words. In Acts 1.25, we have ministry and apostleship in that context. And the idea may be ministry that is made up of or composed of apostleship. So the two ideas combining into one, one of them defining the other, like pain and childbearing, defines the kind of childbearing. So in Acts 125, 
ministry is defined specifically as apostleship ministry. Does that make sense? So we have personification, anthropomorphism, metonymy, hindeides, very common in scripture, merism, and I think we use merism today as well. Merism is the totality or whole is substituted by two contrasting or opposite parts. In other words, you have two extremes, you might even say, in some cases. What comes to mind in our culture, we sometimes refer to, oh, I worked night and day. In other words, the two extremes of the light portion of the day and the night portion of the day. Are we saying that I worked 24 hours? Is that what I'm trying to communicate? Or am I probably saying, well, I got up before sunset and it was already dark and I worked throughout the whole day until it got dark again? Not necessarily 24 hours, but I worked so hard that it almost seemed like I worked night and day. So it conveys the idea, the single idea of very intense labor, very intense work. But by using the two extremes, I picture the totality of what I'm trying to describe. Probably the most common merism is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Two extremes, in other words, that that is closest to me and that that is the furthest away, so far that I cannot even observe the extent of it. That's probably a merism to convey the idea of God created the universe, the totality of all things material, all things in the material realm. Probably a merism, giving the two extremes. In Hebrew, there's no word for universe, so this little phrase is commonly used to convey the totality of all of God's creation. Psalm 139.2 is another example. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Now, does God know, you know, okay, guy's sitting down now, I know everything about him. He's rising up now. I, I I still know what's going on in him. Or are these two kind of extreme or opposite areas that convey God knows everything about me? I think that's the idea that is being conveyed by the psalm there. So he understands every aspect, my sitting down and my rising up. That's a merism. There's also what is called euphemisms. A euphemism is a substitution of a mild or indirect or vague expression for one idea that may be offensive or maybe difficult in some way. So you use more a, a mild, vague description. Now, oftentimes we use euphemisms in our culture as well, particularly in sexual areas. Uh, they slept together. Well, what do we sometimes mean by that? We mean more than, oh, they just uh, were able to get a good night's rest. Or uh, that's a euphemism to convey the idea that uh, they have a sexual relationship. 
And the Bible similarly uses a euphemism in a similar context in Genesis 4.1. Uh, some translations translate it this way. I think this is New American Standard. Now, the man had relations. The Hebrew word is the man knew knew his wife Eve. And then in the context, and she conceived, kind of defining the knowing there. New American Standard translates it relations. The Hebrew word uses a euphemism, the man knew the woman. Now, it's not the idea, oh, how do you do? My name is John, I know you now because I've introduced myself. No, it's talking about the most intimate relationships between a man and his wife. But that's a euphemism. doesn't use the explicit expression for the sexual relationship there. Another example of euphemism is Acts 7:60. And falling on his knees, he cried out, this is Stephen, with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Now, he was stoned. And did he just doze off? I mean, it was just kind of casual. He was stoned. No. It's a euphemism. Uh, rather than saying, you know, he died, it kind of softens it a little. In our culture, we do the same thing. We don't talk about death. We, we kind of use the phrase, well, he passed away. Uh, that softens it considerably. Bible does the same thing. It uses euphemism. So the Bible is full of non-literal language. And here's a whole list of, a whole category of ways of substituting one thing for another. There are not only substitutions, but there can be what are called omissions. A category of omissions. The most obvious is called ellipsis, where a phrase or a word is omitted because either it's so obvious in the context that uh, it's understandable without its inclusion. So an, an ellipsis is omitting something that has to be supplied to complete the sentence grammatically. An example from Scripture, oftentimes in the New Testament, when the twelve apostles are referred to, the writers don't say apostles. They just say the twelve. And in the context, you know that the apostles are referring to the twelve original apostles. An example of that is 1 Corinthians 15, 5. Very commonly, particularly in most, if not all, of the introductions of Paul, the opening sentence doesn't have a verb. The verb that you supply is the, the verb to be or the equative verb there, but it's so obvious that it's not needed. Another example of a similar grammatical construction is 2 Timothy 4.18. To him, New American Standard inserts, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In the original, the be is not there. The verb is omitted. 
literally you would say, to him the glory forever and ever, amen. But English supplies the stative verb there. So that's ellipsis. There are many rhetorical questions in scripture. A rhetorical question is one that does not need to be answered, and sometimes the answer is obvious. But it's given because it uh, forces the reader to answer in their minds and to consider perhaps the implications. And there are several answers, particularly Genesis 3, where God asks particular questions, not for information, because God knows the situation of sin in Adam and Eve. He asks the questions for the benefit of Adam and Eve. So rhetorical questions are common. There are also figures that involve overstatement. And let me give you some examples of overstatement in Scripture. The most obvious is what's called hyperbole or exaggeration. The Bible does, in fact, use hyperbole. And let me give you some possible examples. Some of these are debated. I think these are fairly clear. For example, Matthew 16, 26. And by the way, you parents, those of you that are parents, you use hyperbole oftentimes with your children, right? I've told you that a million times. Well, before that day, had you told them 999,999 times, and now you've reached the millionth? Well, no. Uh, You're using hyperbole. I think the Bible does something similar. Matthew 16, 26, For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world? This is Jesus. Jesus using hyperbole. And forfeits his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You might even have a rhetorical question there as well. But is it even conceivable, even Bill Gates will not gain the whole world. That's that's hyperbole there. But it's given to, to add power to the idea that Jesus is conveying there. When Jesus confronts the religious leaders of Israel in Matthew 23, 24, he says, you blind guides who strain out a gnat. In other words, this is a very vivid picture, who strain out a gnat. So imagine a, a gnat in your iced tea. So they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That's hyperbole. A little bit of exaggeration to make a point there. And Psalm 6-6 in the Old Testament, the psalmist cries out, I'm weary with my sighing. Every night I I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. Uh, Imagine that. In other words, imagine it literally, and obviously it doesn't make sense, but uh, the the vivid picture conveys in exaggeration uh, the fact that the psalmist is in deep sorrow or deep weeping at least, such that his bed is floating in the water of tears. Can you imagine that? That's hyperbole. We use irony. 
and so does the Bible. The Bible uses lots of irony. The passage I, I kind of laugh, in fact, you almost have to laugh out loud when he's confronting the prophets of Baal, when Elijah is confronting in 1 Kings 27. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice. He's talking about the, the, the Baal. In other words, call Baal out. Uh, maybe he can't hear you. He's hard of hearing. For he's a god. Uh, either he's occupied. Maybe he's too busy to bother with you. Or, and I think in the Hebrew here, or gone aside, I think that's an illusion. In fact, that would be a euphemism for, is he sitting on the toilet there? Or is on a journey? Or perhaps he's asleep. This God, he's asleep. He's so weary, he sleeps and needs to be awakened. I think that's irony. I think Elijah is using irony. So irony is certainly used. 1 Corinthians 4.8, we'll talk about this again, but if you miss the irony in 1 Corinthians 4.8 and the surrounding passages all the way through about verse 10, you'll miss the whole point of what Paul is saying in that passage. I'll let you look that one up for yourself. So, lots of figures of speech, overstatement, inconsistencies, there are paradoxes. Paradoxes in Scripture, seeming contradictions. An example might be Mark eight thirty five. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Okay, that seems like a paradoxical statement. How do you save your life by losing it? He goes on, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. Jesus using paradox, a a seeming contradiction. Similarly, oxymoron, that's the combining of terms that are opposite or contradictory. Sometimes we can say, you know, the, the silence was deafening. That's an oxymoron that we use in our culture. Or we might say it's an open secret. Well, if it's a secret, how can it be open? Well, that's the oxymoron of it. Paul, probably in Romans 12.1, is using an oxymoron when he said, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. The Jews never saw a living sacrifice. They considered it holy, but it was dead. They they killed the animal first before they sacrificed it. But Paul is saying a living and holy sacrifice uh, seems inconsistent with Jewish thinking, at least. Well, that gives you a feel for some of the figurative language that you will encounter in Scripture. And like I said, there's there's many others. This is just a little kind of taste of what you can find of some of the more common figures of speech that occur in the Bible, and I'll refer you back to the book by Bullinger if you are interested in an abundance of examples, and I found it helpful in sometimes if I'm not understanding a passage and 
considering whether it's a figure of speech, I can look it up in there, and sure enough, he will oftentimes have it as one of his several hundred illustrations. Well, why don't we go ahead and take a short break at this point, and then we'll come back and we will take a look at important principles. We've completed looking at the essential principles, the ones that without these principles, you would not have the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. But uh, there are other principles that we need to look at as well. Let's take about six minutes or so, five or six, and we'll come back. Last hour, we completed looking at what I describe as the essential principles of hermeneutics. And this isn't the right slide. This hour, we want to get into what I describe as important principles. Hmm, what's wrong with this thing? And by important, I mean that they're not as important as the essential principles, but they also have a place and we need them. Some of them came about as a result of mistakes that were made historically in the church and were added a vivid example is one that I'll call attention to when we get there. So the first one that is important is we might describe it as the literary principle. And what I mean by literary principle, we can describe it as taking literary form into consideration in interpretation. And I gave you a brief description of what we mean by literary form. In fact, I showed this same slide. If I can get it to come up. Oh, there it is. Uh, I don't know what's going on with this program. Okay, the literary principle. The slide I showed you has at the top narrative material and When we talk about literary form, we're talking about genre. That's another word for the same idea. In the Bible, not only do we have different uh, metaphorical language, different non-literal usages, 
But we have also different kinds of literature, like narrative is a particular literary form. And I will go over all of this in more detail after we've gone through the Bible study methods portion. But I'm just introducing it here as a principle. In other words, the literary principle in terms of interpreting according to the literary form. You treat narrative a little bit differently than you do poetry. You probably talked about and heard people describe poetic license. In other words, there's more flexibility when you come to interpreting poetry. One of the characteristics of poetry, it has a higher percentage or a higher higher level of metaphorical language. So you're going to use those metaphorical conventions more often in poetry than you are in, say, narrative material. So poetry is very different from narrative. Narrative is just basically stories or material presented in story form. So very common. In fact, there's a meta-narrative, you could say, of the whole Bible. I gave you a little description of that. And there are some books that have lots of poetry in them, and some books that have predominantly narrative material. There's also what we would describe as discursive material. This is kind of a broad description that would include epistolary literature. It would include the letters that we have in the New Testament. But it would also include, for example, the sermons of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, the Upper Room Discourse. They're called discourses because it's discursive. And discursive material has its own characteristics. And you utilize those characteristics in interpreting material that falls into those categories. There's also prophetic material. And in some prophetic material, it also uses poetic. A lot of prophetic material is in also the genre of poetic. So you have a combination of those two. And we'll talk about the unique characteristics of poetic material. And uh, there's a small amount, but a significant amount of parabolic or parables, especially in the New Testament, the parables of Jesus. But there are parables in the Old Testament as well. So parables have their own particular characteristics. Take them into account in interpreting them. And when we talk about special hermeneutics, we'll deal with all of these and other literary form as well. These first five here are the most common, and then there's others that are not as common, but you might encounter some of them elsewhere. A subset of poetic, for example, is wisdom literature. It's not only poetic, but it also has even more specific characteristics of Hebrew wisdom literature. So that's the literary principle. Another very important principle, we could describe it as the principle of single meaning. 
And what I mean by that is meaning in each text is single, definite, and fixed. It's single in that there's not multiple meanings. It's definite in that it has certain limits. In other words, it can mean this and not this. And it's fixed in that we need to look to the author because he's the one that sets the limits and he's the one that defines that single meaning for us within the particular context. Now, this is very important because this is a principle that is often abused, I could say, or neglected maybe is a better way of describing it in that sometimes there's a tendency to be more flexible in finding a meaning. But I'm going to stress throughout, in general, when we communicate, we have a particular meaning that we're trying to communicate. We seldom, although it's possible that we might use double entendres, uh, but that's a whole literary genre in itself, But the Bible, I'd say overall and in general, has a fixed, single, definite meaning. So that's an important principle to keep in mind. So to Uh, to just question on that, if I could. Sure. Uh, What about prophecy with a immediate and a future fulfillment? That's a good question, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about prophetic material. Okay. But you have to be careful. The safeguards within our approach is if you can defend from a biblical text that idea, uh, then you have some validity to making that claim. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk some more about that. So to just kind of expand this, words and sentences can have but one meaning. And in general, this is the way we communicate. This is the way most authors communicate. And in general, this is the way God has communicated. And this goes against allegorical interpretation, adding multiple meanings. So we want to be very, very clear to distinguish between uh, allegorical and this method. But there's other subtle ways, even apart from going so far as allegorical. So, single meaning. And the bottom line is, what is the author's intent? What is the author's intended meaning? And there may be some cases... And a case could be made, for example, some might say, well, John, when he's speaking, for example, he said it was night. And there are some commentators that might say, well, John intended us to take it uh, beyond just the physical circumstance of being after seven o'clock or whatever. Uh, That he was conveying that there was a sense of darkness about that that occasion as well, uh, evil or spiritual darkness. Well, you'd have to debate it and see if you can uh, come up with evidence from the text to support the author's intended meaning. That's the bottom line. If the author intended it, yes. 
but uh, there's rare cases like that. One interpretation, and when we get to application, we're going to make a distinction. You can come up with many applications. So we want to make a sharp distinction between interpretation, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that when we get to the Bible study methods portion, and then we're going to conclude that portion by talking about applications. One interpretation, but many or a multitude of applications. There is what theologians describe as sensus plenor. It's Latin for multiple senses or many meanings. But if you go too far in this area, it introduces a lot more subjectivity, and it's an area that uh, we want to be very cautious. So, first and foremost, look for a single meaning and if there's warrant, then maybe you can go beyond that. But remember, you're moving more into an area of subjectivity. The problem that we have is it appears that in some cases, the New Testament authors seem to go beyond the original Old Testament authors. And we'll talk some more about that as well. When we talk about special hermeneutics, we'll deal with this whole issue itself and how, in fact, I, we talk about it in terms of the New Testament use of the Old Testament. So New Testament authors sometimes take a passage and it seems like they're going beyond what the Old Testament author intended. Uh, the caveat that we have here is the New Testament authors, if in fact they are adding meaning that the original author in the Old Testament did not intend, they're doing it by inspiration. In other words, they have authority because they are inspired writers. They have authority that we as interpreters do not have. We are interpreters. We are not inspired in our interpretation. We are not inspired New Testament authors. But again, we'll come back to that. So uh, the principle is basically single meaning per passage uh, within any given context. Uh, two others, there's one that's called the clarity of scripture principle, and there's a second one, I'll look at each of these individually, the unity of scripture principle. First of all, the clarity of scripture principle, we can state this as scripture was intended to be understood. Now, you might say, well, that sounds a little redundant or almost unnecessary. Why, why do we even have to have this principle? Well, this is one of those principles that came about historically because of a situation where this idea was actually suppressed and was not held to in terms of uh, Bible interpretation. Does anyone know the background here? Where this came about? Let me give you a hint. It came about 
during the uh, mm -hmm. Protestant Reformation. That gives you a big clue right there. Yep. What were you saying? Yep. It was through the Roman Church where uh, common people weren't said to have enough intelligence to understand, especially since they didn't have the uh, the uh, background of the <clears throat> of the of the church's uh, oral traditions and uh, other traditions you know, embedded in them, their creeds and things. Exactly. That that's exactly the background. In that, in fact, the Roman Catholic Church, before the Reformation, suppressed the reading of the Bible by the lay people. Leave it us, leave it up to us professionals. We know what we're doing. You don't. Uh, we know how to interpret. You'll only confuse yourself. You cannot understand the scriptures. You have to come to us. And the reformers, they were reformers, I mentioned in that little thumbnail sketch of of the history of hermeneutics, they were reformers in the area of hermeneutics first. And that spilled over into a spiritual reformation where masses of people came, came into a saving relationship. But this is one of the key principles that they brought forward uh, to encourage not only the, the reading by everyone, the reading of scripture, but also the idea that when God communicated, he communicated such that he wanted to be understood. So scripture was intended to be understood. And it was as a result of many people being exposed to scripture and the common people reading that stimulated uh, the Protestant Reformation. And I believe that if a person is truly born again, that in general, Scripture is understandable. Certainly there are difficult areas, and there are areas that challenge even the mo most scholarly uh, uh, Bible students. But overall, God communicates, and he uses the Holy Spirit to illumine a sincere reader that desires uh, to understand scripture and he promises that if we seek after him we will find him and we find him through an understanding of what he has revealed so scripture was intended to be understood so it's not redundant it's it is a very needed concept unfortunately today in, in many of our churches we are almost going back to this idea of the common person, uh, there's not a, a strong encouragement for people to get into the scriptures. Maybe not so much amongst a lot of the Bible churches, but overall, a lot of the churches, uh, people are heavily dependent on whatever the, the pastor presents, and oftentimes even what he presents may not even be biblically based itself. So, scripture was intended to be understood. The other one that I alluded to from that other slide there, the unity of scripture. We could state this principle as you can use scripture to interpret scripture. In scripture, scripture can interpret itself. And what we mean by that and ways that that is applicable 
is, yes, Scripture is intended to be understood, but there are some passages that are not as clear as others. So we utilize clear passages to help us to understand more obscure passages. Or also, we also find in Scripture that there are oftentimes primary passages or more extended passages where we have more detail. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, probably the central passage of all the scripture on the resurrection, where we have a, almost a complete doctrine of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, but that gives us a foundation and a resource to be able to look at other passages that may be more obscure or less complete than 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, so, Scripture will interpret Scripture. So, we compare Scripture with Scripture. And there's another principle that kind of goes along with that that is similar. We call that the analogy of Scripture principle. Uh, similar to unity of Scripture, but it has some distinctions to it. And another one we call progress of revelation. So first let's go back to number five there. We can state the analogy of scripture principle that there is a general harmony of fundamental doctrines that and, and unity within all of the scriptures. So this general harmony enables us to interpret such that no interpretation of one passage can contradict the rest of Scripture. So no interpretation of a passage can contradict the rest of Scripture. We applied this, I gave you an example, in a different context of Romans 3, for example, where Paul is talking about justification by faith. And then we get to the book of James and get to chapter 2, and James is talking about justification by faith. And Paul is saying justification by faith apart from works, and faith alone. And James is saying justification by faith, but uh, faith that does not have works is dead. Well, are those two passages contradictory? And I tried to give you a brief explanation in terms of two different theological contexts, but not a contradiction because of this principle, the analogy of Scripture principle. So we seek harmony when we encounter passages like that, that on the surface appear to be contradictory, but uh, upon further exegesis, we can find that there's actually a harmony that uh, can, in fact, be found. So, uh, no passage, when rightly interpreted, contradicts another or the rest of Scripture in general. And this can apply to a particular passage in contradiction, seeming contradiction to another one, or it can apply in terms of the broad perspective. In other words, something that goes against the broad teaching of Scripture. Also, you might encounter what appear to be 
contradictions within certain areas of study. For example, today, there's a movement called open theism that seems to, to contradict some areas of doctrine. So we evaluate some of the emphases of passages that open theism uses with other clear passages that speak of the doctrine of God's immutability, because open theism seems to undermine that whole doctrine. And since you can't have a contradiction, then there's probably something wrong with that that uh, theological position of open theism. So that's the analogy of scripture principle. Progressive revelation, very, very important principle. We could state it as God has revealed his mind over time. Now, again, this might seem redundant because you know that obviously Genesis was revealed much earlier than Romans or Matthew. We know that uh, there's an Old Testament revelation and there's a New Testament revelation. So why do we have to have this? Well, this is so that we put passages within their historical context. And when we put passages in their historical context, we also think in terms of their theological context. And some things have not quite been complete in terms of revelation until we get further into the Bible, specifically the New Testament. Or sometimes there's a tendency by some theologians to read New Testament concepts back into the Old Testament, and I think that's a violation of this principle. Probably the most blatant area, I believe, is... It's very common, particularly in a whole theological school of thought, to read into the Old Testament the church. The church existing in the Old Testament in the form of Israel. In fact, those theologians would identify Israel as the Old Testament church. And also they would identify the church as the New Testament Israel. But it violates this principle of progressive revelation. The church does not exist. In fact, Paul describes it in Ephesians 3 as a mystery. And his use, if you do a word study on the word mysterion, the Greek word there, you'll find out that that word conveys the idea of something that has not been revealed in the past. So when taught, When Paul is talking about the church, it's a mystery in the sense that Paul is basically giving new revelation and or building on new revelation that we have concerning the church in the New Testament. So the concept of the church is a New Testament doctrine, New Testament idea that God uh, waited to reveal until New Testament time, until after even the crucifixion. Now, Jesus mentions it in Matthew, and I doubt that the apostles understood what he was talking about in Matthew 16 when he promised that he would build his church. 
So in the progress of revelation, God has unfolded aspects of his plan that he has not revealed in prior revelation. And this is particularly true of prophetic material. We have more insight into the plan of God and the way early prophetic statements begin to become more clear in terms of how they are being fulfilled as we have more and more revelation, particularly the revelation concerning Messiah. And actually, the revelation concerning Messiah uh, finds far more detail by the time we come to the New Testament, and we have not only the revelation of Jesus himself, but the rest of the New Testament to interpret Jesus as the Messiah. So we have very specific progress of revelation. A very important principle. In fact, the entire dispensational view of Scripture and dispensational theology is highly dependent on this principle of progressive revelation. Now, when we speak of the progress of revelation, we're not speaking in terms of an evolutionary sense. Uh, the evolutionist sees progress in a in a different sense in that mistakes are corrected, uh, things are inadequate. Uh, that's not the idea of progressive revelation. What God revealed to Adam and Eve was perfectly adequate. They had everything that they needed, I believe, for life and godliness in their time frame. And as we have the development of scripture and the writing and the record of those accounts, uh, God progressively reveals more and more. So it's not in an evolutionary sense, but in a more simply unfolding and expanding of what God has already perhaps revealed in seed form. Now, when I teach the book of Genesis, uh, I start with Genesis 1-1, and Genesis 1-1 is full of revelation concerning who God is. But we have a revelation that is not developed, not fully developed, until even some aspects of that that we have in Genesis 1-1 is not fully developed until we come to even the New Testament. The example that I give, or when I teach, for example, Genesis 1-1, one of the things that I mention in terms of what is revealed there, uh, God is transcendent. In other words, God is distinct and separate from his creation, because in the beginning, in other words, God is already there, And now we have the beginning of the material realm and history and God's universe. So he's already there. But as we progress further, we find out more and more detail concerning the separateness of God and his creation. There's a distinction between the creator and the creation. And I go through several things in there. Another thing that I develop in that is the word Elohim itself is a plural. Well, it's not teaching the doctrine of the Trinity because the doctrine of the Trinity isn't clearly developed even until you get to the New Testament. But already in Genesis 1-1, we already have the idea of God being more 
than a singularity. Now, God is one, but he's not a singularity, if you can uh, understand what I'm saying. So, even within the name, Elohim, his plural, has the im ending, the plural Hebrew ending, gives us the idea of God. There's a multiplicity to God. We don't know exactly what that is from Genesis 1-1, but as we progress, we see more and more. To add to that, Hebrew grammar requires that you have concordance between the subject and the verb. And in Genesis 1-1, God is the subject, but it's in the plural. But the verb, created, is in the singular. Well, is this bad Hebrew grammar? Grammar? No. What we have here is we have that allowance. And again, it's not strictly speaking teaching the Trinity, but it's making allowance so that as we progress through Scripture, we have more specific data, you might say, to formulate doctrines like the Trinity. And by the way, it took the church over 300 years after Christ to fully come up with the full-blown doctrine that we believe in today that we describe as the Trinity. But you already, in seed form, you have a plural subject and a singular verb. So there's a, it's looking at the Godhead as one, as singular. You see that? The grammar kind of dictates that. Not so clear. Uh, again, uh, Genesis 3.15, we have, in very cryptic form, a revelation that God is going to ultimately deal with evil. And it's going to involve the seed of the woman. We don't have detail there. And again, it's not till the New Testament that we begin to see that even in Genesis 3.15, we have allowance for a virgin birth. And we have allowance for an individual person that is a descendant of this woman that is going to resolve this issue by crushing the head of the serpent. But from Genesis 3.15, you, you can't come up with all of that. It's going to take the rest of Scripture to develop the, this line of descendants that are going to come from the woman that even at the end of the Old Testament, it's not clear who that descendant is. Uh, we know that he's going to be a messianic personage. And there's even passages that indicate that he will have uh, attributes of deity and attributes of humanity. And then when we come to the New Testament, it all comes together. So that's progress of revelation. Does that make sense? Is that clear? A clear passage, and this is just one, but there's a lot of passages that we could utilize, but one that kind of is very striking is the introduction to the book of Hebrews. It almost, in understanding this passage, almost states this progress of revelation idea. Let me just read it to you. God... After he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets 
in many portions and in many ways. In other words, God revealing himself in the past. He spoke. He revealed. Long ago, so this is over a period of time, more specific to fathers, God gave revelation to them and through prophets, and he does it in a variety of ways, many portions, I could give you more specific on that, and in many ways, through different means, through direct revelation, through dreams, through visions, variety of ways. And then in verse 2, in these last days. In other words, here's another period where there's going to be revelation. In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, etc., etc. Now we have more revelation further, and we might even say more complete revelation in Jesus Christ, in the son. And uh, the book of Hebrews is going to expand and focus on the Son. So that's progress of revelation. And we have progress of revelation. We have a logical principle, a supernatural principle. Let's like take a look at those next two. The logical principle. Scripture utilizes basic principles of logic and communication. And again, this seems obvious, but we see the cults sometimes go against this principle in that they go against logic, they go against common communication, so we need to state it. And we do, obviously, not see everything clearly. But we want to apply this and and utilize what God has built within us. He's given us minds that are rational. Uh, Logic ultimately comes from him, and he's put it within us. And he desires that we use it to, along with all of the other principles, to better understand what he is communicating. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, in other words, we don't understand everything, but then, in other words, there's going to be further revelation, then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So there is some potential for misunderstanding. There is some mystery. But by utilizing basic principles, it'll help us to overcome some of those difficulties. Some books utilize a lot of logic. You you can't understand the book of Romans without applying this principle, because Paul begins by developing ideas that build upon one another. They build upon one idea and another, and he's arguing like a lawyer in a court of law, laying down facts, certain theology, obviously, but the book of Romans is one of the most logical books of all of Scripture, and the principle is most needed in interpreting that book. So you don't jump in the middle of the book of Romans unless you want to get thoroughly confused in what Paul is trying to communicate. So his arguments 
follow sequentially and build one upon another. Uh, so the logical principle, we want to be objective, the priority of objectivity, very, very important in any area, but demanded by the logical principle. Do everything we can to eliminate our own desires, our own subjectivity, our own inclinations in terms of what we want a passage to say. This is a constant area that we want to keep suppressed, if you will. And this is part of the logical principle. And overall, you want to give the writer the benefit of the doubt uh, based on the passage that I just read. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 13, 12. Supernatural principle, interpret scripture as a divine book. This principle distinguishes us from the liberals. They don't hold to this principle. This is what makes us evangelical, you might say, in the older sense of the word. Uh, we view scripture as a divine book, as inspired, as inerrant, and it has a supernatural element to it. So we leave room for that. We allow for miracles. So we, we allow for even mystery and hold to inerrancy, uh, high authority of scripture, the authoritative aspects of, of scripture. So it's not just a human book, but it is also a supernatural book. There's another principle. We might call it the finite principle. And the last one here is the Christological principle in terms of important principles. And what I mean by the finite principle See. Program got hung up here. Not sure what happened. My program got tired here. Well, let me just explain it, and then we'll take another break and see if I can can uh, fix it here. What I mean by the finite principle, let me state it. I'll state it a couple of times so you can write it. You won't be able to see it. Uh, we interpret with an, an awareness of mystery in Scripture. Now, this you can combine with the supernatural as well. So there's a certain amount of mystery, and you can also utilize that First uh, Corinthians 13:12 passage. We know uh, in part now we see in a mirror dimly. There'll be a time when we'll see face to face. So we interpret with a, an awareness of mystery in Scripture. Uh, we won't exhaust our understanding of Scripture. We will never. Uh, be able to understand everything in it, but with the clarity of Scripture principle, we can understand what God desires us to understand. 
There are some doctrines, for example, even the doctrine of the Trinity. Scholars have struggled, and and I don't know of anyone that feels perfectly comfortable in understanding every aspect of it. We can state it, but yet uh, it almost doesn't fit our thinking. Uh, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, uh, how, do you, how do you put those together? Well, we may not be able to resolve all of those areas. So that's the finite principle. And uh, another one that some theologians add, or some hermeneutical teachers include, would be the Christological principle. And this is useful in that overall scripture is a revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the focus and center of scripture. So we can utilize this principle, which I'll state, interpret, in, interpret scripture with Christ as its center or interpret with Christ as central to all of scriptures. This seems to be what Jesus himself does at the end of the Gospel of Luke when he's on the road to Emmaus with with the two travelers. Let me look up the passage here. Luke 24. And if you remember the context, this is after the resurrection, and Jesus appears to them in resurrected form, and apparently he appears in a way that he's not recognized. This might be a way that resurrection bodies can manifest themselves. So they carry on a conversation. They end up at the home of the two disciples. They invite him to stay. And uh, at the beginning of the conversation, they're talking about just the turmoil in the city, and it appears that he's oblivious to what had happened. So there's the conversation, and they don't recognize him. And then, uh, before uh, the end of the day, they end up at the house, and at the house he reveals himself. So apparently a resurrection body in bright sunlight can be veiled in such a way that he's unrecognizable, Jesus at least. And in the darkened room with uh, lamp light, he's able to be seen and known who he is. But notice what Jesus does in, I think, let's see, verse 20. 25, and he said to them, O foolish man, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. So he's going to expound the Old Testament, and particularly the prophets. Was it not necessary for the Christ, or the anointed one, that's the meaning of the word Christ, or the Messiah, you can translate it that way, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then verse 27, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, in other words, the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all 
the scriptures. Christ seems to be applying a Christological principle, takes the Old Testament as a whole, and shows how he is, in fact, the center of that. And then he reiterates that same idea in verse 44. Now he, he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So in the first passage, he divides the Old Testament into two parts, and then in verse 44, into three parts with him at the center. So these are your hermeneutical principles broken down into two categories, essential principles and now the important principles. Let's take another break and come back in about five or ten. Well, we will begin the portion of the course that we will call Bible study methods or Technically, we would describe it as exegesis, but we want to make sure, did you have any questions on what we talked about in the last, not only last hour, but dealing with hermeneutical principles? Right, it might be helpful to explain what open theism is and how it uh, violates or undermines the analogy of scripture principles. Okay, very good. That's a good question. Uh, that's a more recent theological position. And I don't know if it's grown much, but it was popular about five years ago in some circles. And basically, open theism, if I can kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of it, viewed a lot of the passages that speaks of God changing his mind in some passages, like Genesis 6. Some versions seem to indicate that, or God repents. Um, They built a whole theology on several passages like that, that God does not, that uh, the universe is more open in that the outcome is not as certain as we as more dispensationalists would say. And the future is a little bit more flexible, and God reacts more to how man responds and then sets forward a, a, a new plan, you might even say, open theism. And it's almost as if God does not know what the future is and his plan is not set and certain. So... That kind of violates not only that that principle, but several others as well. And what we would do is we would take the clear passages. Uh, in fact, most of those passages, we would probably view some of them as anthropomorphic. But we would take other very, <clears throat> very clear passages. For example, passages that say God does not change, pretty clear stated in several places, and we would prioritize the idea that uh, God has a definite plan. God is omniscient. He knows the future. He's not 
almost fumbling about depending on how man responds and uh, harmonize those passages that they prioritize, harmonize them within the context of a sovereign, omniscient, all-powerful God who has a plan and has it set forth. Does that kind of give you an idea of what open theism is about? In fact, I believe that it goes contrary to not only hermeneutical principles, but some even clear passages as well. So I would reject it as as a theology. That, that was helpful. Good. Okay, let's spend the rest of our time today talking about what technically we might describe exegesis. Principles will be the same, except those that require the original languages. But technically, exegesis are the application of the hermeneutical principles that we just looked at in the passages themselves, utilizing them to interpret passages. And I will give you an extension of the... uh, Science and Art of Interpretation. Okay, we're going to give you a process utilizing grammatical, historical, contextual method. We commonly refer to the literal method, and now you understand what we mean by literal. It doesn't exclude metaphorical language. And we've already looked at the essential principles. Now we will apply the linguistic principle. In fact, we'll spend most of our effort applying this principle. We will utilize the contextual principle, historical principle, cultural principle, and metaphorical principle. Just a quick review. And what we want to distinguish is a process of studying that I like to distinguish between what is very, very common in the church today. What a lot of preachers do in presenting either their sermons or their ideas, I call sometimes, we could describe it as an idea-driven sermon. So an idea-driven sermon, the, the preacher observes the congregation and tries to discern the need of the congregation at any point in time. And a week before he preaches, based on that need that he observes, he will come up with an idea or a sermon to attempt to meet that need. And he will then come up with biblical texts that either are related or somehow, in his mind, is going to meet that need. And, obviously, after you develop some texts, you want to have some illustrations that go along with it to illustrate the points you're making. But, in general, this is a very incomplete way of feeding a flock or leading, I believe, a a church. And I think it leaves the congregation very incomplete in terms of not only Bible knowledge, but spiritual growth. 
even though this is somewhat the typical way that uh, preachers often come up with what they do on any given Sunday morning. And I just mention this in contrast to the process that we're going to go through and what I describe as a more text-driven series, if you will, or series of sermons or messages or teaching. And what we encourage, particularly at Chafer, is to teach Scripture sentence by sentence. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't see validity on some occasions to teach topically. And personally, I've taught some topics in the past. In fact, I did a series on the nature and perfections of God, which was primarily topical, dealing with individual attributes or perfections of God, going through a pretty extensive list, several weeks, 65, I think, or something like that. So... Uh, it doesn't discount on some occasion to do that, but as a general practice, we encourage that we teach students how to exegete the passage in such a way that they prepare themselves to teach sentence by sentence. And in order to do that, I believe that this is a far better approach and a far more balanced approach in in teaching God's Word. And rather than uh, a preacher-driven message from his own brain, his own idea, I think it tends to be more a Holy Spirit-guided approach, where even the best pastor, the best discerner of where his congregation may be, uh, he doesn't see the heart. He doesn't really know completely where people are. And oftentimes we only see people on a Sunday morning and maybe a midweek study. And But there's a lot of time that we don't see people and it's hard to discern what they need. But if we take a book, expound it sentence by sentence, trust that the Holy Spirit is guiding us as we go through that, I've noticed in my own teaching that it's not unusual for people to come up and say, you know, that passage really, you know, that it was almost like that passage was speaking right to me. And I had no idea where that person was, what their needs are, but I think the Holy Spirit does, and he matches that with particular passages. So when we go sentence by sentence, I think it's more allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us and also frees us from any accusation that you may be picking on someone in the congregation by the topics that may be chosen on any given Sunday. So we encourage sentence by sentence, and everything that I will share with you will be designed to prepare you to understand the scriptures sentence by sentence so that you can take that study and turn it into a message or sermon or teaching, whatever your style may be, and utilize it. And whether it be on a Sunday morning in a pulpit or whether it be in a discipleship class or um, one-on-one uh, discipleship, 
uh, you can take the results of that study and utilize it uh, by going <coughs> sentence by sentence. And I just I've noticed that uh, when you do that, you will cover a lot of areas. For example, you don't have to necessarily have a series on apologetics because there's a lot of passages that the very nature of the passage itself, the writer is defending certain things, certain doctrines in some cases. For example, if you're teaching through 1 Corinthians and you get to chapter 15, Paul is doing apologetics. He's defending the doctrine of the resurrection and giving reasons why we not only believe in it, but he's also expounding that doctrine. So he's not only doing apologetics, but he's doing theology. He's giving us the doctrine of the resurrection. So as we go sentence by sentence, a passage that is by nature apologetic, that's the point at which we become apologists and we let the passage do the apologetics. So we don't have to pre design a teaching on apologetics, the passage already does it for us. We just let the passage uh, speak for itself. And similarly, passages will develop areas of theology as we come across them. And what this does, as we consistently go through a book, we will not only touch apologetics, theology, um, current issues, or whatever the case may be, but uh, we will ultimately present to people the whole counsel of God. And most books are conducive to somewhat, depending on the depth that you want to go, some of them you can spend years on them. Um, I'm teaching through the book of Romans right now, and I, I'm only in chapter 5, and I think we've been there, I don't remember, two years already. Uh, nobody's in a hurry, and we're enjoying the time, and I'm covering all of these aspects. And, for example, we got into the Old Testament because Romans chapter 5 deals with Abraham as an example of justification by faith. So we go to the passages pertaining to Abraham, and we get a touch of some of what Genesis is talking about. So this is more conducive for dealing with individuals or congregations, presenting the whole counsel of God. So, back to what I introduced. This is part of hermeneutics. We've looked at the general principles, and I've given you a, a list of 15 general principles, five essential principles, ten important principles, one of those principles, the literary principle, deals with special genres, but there's other areas of special hermeneutics. Those are not as crucial to deal with immediately, so we'll hold those for the end of uh, the course. And uh, we'll utilize the general principles and deal with exegesis. And by the time we complete the course... You'll have not only the general principles, but the special hermeneutics that will enable you to do uh, full-blown exegesis. So we're going to spend about the next eight weeks dealing with this area of the process of exegesis. And then once you have exegeted a passage, you're in a position to teach it, 
in whatever setting. We call that exposition all the way from one-on-one counseling or even evangelism to uh, pulpit ministry and everything in between. So let me give you, in the time that we have, I'll just give you an introduction. We may not even complete this introduction, and we'll just pick up where we leave off next week. Uh, An introduction to exegesis. I think I alluded in the introduction. Was there a question there? Comment? No? Somebody have their microphone? I don't see anybody. Okay. So, exegesis. I made a comment concerning the relationship between exegesis and and the scientific method. I I think I briefly mentioned the background in that the scientific method actually came about, at least modern science and the scientific method came about as a result of the early scientists taking their exegetical skills and applying them in dealing with understanding the natural realm. They saw from Scripture passages like Romans 1, verse 19 and 20, that speaks of God revealing himself through the natural realm. That's one means that God is utilized to reveal himself. That's... um, natural revelation as opposed to special revelation uh, they they realized that we could learn something about God by studying that that he has created we could learn something of the creator by the creation so they took their exegetical skills and utilized them in studying the natural realm and formulated what we refer to as the scientific method And the scientific method has three components. The first and very foundational and important is the area of observation. Where we make observations in the natural realm, depending on the area that we're studying. And the goal is to collect data from these observations in order to be able to see how that data relates. And as we make enough observations, we begin to think in terms of relationships of data. We call that generalization, where we make statements concerning the natural realm, trying to understand what makes things work, what makes things tick, in other words. In other words, what did God build into the creation such that it is what it is so that we can come up with statements that describe the natural realm, that describe reality. And the scientific method also has a way of validating those generalizations. We call that verification. And verification is the stage of testing. We come up with a way of testing that hypothesis to see whether it holds water, whether it's valid. And we try to not only verify it, but we we try to disprove it or show that 
it has weaknesses in order to refine our understanding. We want to be accurate in our understanding of the natural realm and what it teaches us. So, the background is scientists took their exegetical skills, and these are all exegetical ideas here, and I'll show the analogy in a moment, and in the various fields, one of the better known scientists, Isaac Newton, for example, famous for being perhaps the father of dynamics, a particular area of physics, but he also dealt with other areas of physics as well. He was more of a biblical scholar in his day. In fact, he was not as well known, if he was known at all for his science, he was better known for his commentaries and his Bible exposition. But he took those skills and applied them in studying the natural realm and today, the secular world is even unaware that he was a Bible believer and that he believed in inerrancy, he believed in inspiration, and he's one of the founders of modern science. The same could be said of Johann Kepler, considered to be the father of astronomy, Robert Boyle, Lord Kelvin, Louis Pasteur as well. These were all believers. They had a high view of scripture. They believed in inerrancy, and they believed that the natural realm reveals something of God, and they took their exegetical skills and applied them to the natural realm. So also to the list at the bottom, uh, this is a chart that I pulled out of uh, Henry Morris's book on the scientific basis of, or the biblical basis of science. Uh, so that's the background. And from that, there is a very clear analogy with the scientific method and exegesis. So I'm going to compare the two using this chart that uh, shows the analogy. We said that the scientific method involves observation, and obviously the better the observations you make, the better will be the hypotheses that you come up with. And it takes an abundance of observations before you even attempt a hypothesis. So you spend more time making observations. So in science, you apply the principle of observation to the natural realm. Or, from a biblical perspective, we could call that the creation. But I'll use secular description here. Uh, nature or the natural realm. So you make observations in the natural realm. In exegesis, those early scientists, they made observations on the biblical text. And that's where we will spend the bulk of our time making observations on the biblical text. And it's very important that we be objective, just as a scientist attempts to be, uh, observing as carefully, as detailed, as thoroughly as we can, we want to have the attitude of a scientist because that is the work that we are doing. And once we have made a number of observations, uh, we want to begin to think in terms of what do these observations mean? In other words, how do they relate? We call that generalization. So 
The scientific method, the second stage, is generalization. So the scientist, after making observations on the natural realm, will form a hypothesis, a statement that describes how these observations relate to one another. In exegesis, we come up, at least initially, with a preliminary interpretation or at least some idea concerning how these words, how these sentences, how these grammatical constructions that we've made observations, how they work together to form ideas that the original author is trying to communicate. So we call that interpretation. That's the generalization stage. Now, we'll spend the bulk of our time observing and generalizing, making observations, coming to tentative conclusions, and by the time we have completed the process, going back and forth, it's like an iteration from observation to interpretation after we've spent adequate time interacting uh, we come to a level of confidence that we understand what the original author is trying to communicate. So that's the process that we'll develop. There's a lot of detail to all of this uh, that we'll spend several weeks looking at. But once we've come up with a, an interpretation and we have some confidence in it, now we want to go into the third stage that the scientist does, and we call that... Uh, verification, but before that I forgot I've got a slide in here to expand on generalization. It's just uh, giving you kind of the process that we go through. Uh, in the natural realm, we form a hypothesis, and after several people have made similar observations and come up with the same hypotheses and have tested that hypothesis thoroughly enough, then it becomes a theory in science. The theory is something that is generally accepted by the scientific community, but there might be some uh, question about it in terms of whether uh, there might be a better explanation or whether it is a theory that uh, can be established without too much question. But once the time has passed and the theory has gone through more testing, more verification, then in science we call that a law. Now, once it reaches the stage of a law, is that law an absolute truth? That's a question that I'm asking all of you. No. No. In fact, historically, laws in science have been abandoned because more observations have been made, and not only more observations, but more accurate, and more data has been taken in, and what has been thought of as been law has now been shown as a result of the observations and testing that that law that was accepted by the scientific community at one time has now been abandoned, or in some cases revised or refined, but just because it becomes law doesn't mean that it's absolute truth. In fact, nothing in science becomes absolute truth. Uh, we could talk about that, but uh, we'll save that for another day. 
So the analogy here, we have a preliminary interpretation when we come to the biblical text. And once others have come to the same conclusion, the same idea, the same conclusions in terms of the understanding of a biblical passage, then we consider it a well-established doctrine. And obviously there's debate over various doctrines, depending on the schools of theology that you might come from. But over time, some of these doctrines are hammered out, and uh, the church, in some cases, has had, has had councils to determine validity of some doctrines, and many of the central doctrines of Christianity uh, we hold as orthodoxy where there's general agreement overall concerning the validity of some of these conclusions. So this is kind of the progress. And what I'm just mainly pointing out here is the analogy that we have with the natural realm. And you need to be aware that science actually came out of exegesis, not vice versa. But also to know that what we do in the exegetical process is, in fact, a scientific approach. Science in its true and its original sense. Um, I do creation science, and there's some things that we have conflicts with in science. Uh, That's a whole area that uh, I can talk about in another context as well. But uh, the two things to get from this is what we do is closely tied to what we would describe as science, and we could even say scientific, but secondly also uh, keep the historical perspective, science comes out of exegesis. So the third stage, after observation and generalization, is the stage of verification in science. We do the testing. In exegesis, we have a similar stage, and we'll go through that as well. We want to substantiate the conclusions that we come to, and there's some things that we can do in that area to gain further confidence that what we are dealing with is sound doctrine or not a viewpoint concerning a passage that is not what the author intended. So there are some checks in uh, the process that we are going to get into. Uh, that's not the case in some of the other approaches and some the other interpretive methods that are out there today. There's also another stage, a fourth stage. The first three are the scientific method, but once you come up with scientific principles, you want to be able to utilize them. In other words, they go beyond the textbook. You want to be able to put them into practice and make them useful in the world in which we live in. So there's actually what we might call a utilization stage in the natural realm or in science. We call that engineering. And what engineers do is they take these principles of science that have been well established and utilize those principles in designing, in the case of civil engineers, they'll design structures or highways or uh, things that we 
encounter in the culture. If you're a mechanical engineer, you might design a, 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 an engine or a component. If you're an electrical engineer, you might design something in the electrical realm, etc. all the areas of uh, engineering. And we don't want to leave out computer science. You can apply that as well, since Barb is a computer scientist or engineer or whatever. But the analogy there is we utilize those principles in the exegetical realm as well. We call that application. And I will make a distinction between, a, a strong distinction between application and interpretation. But it's part of the process, and in fact a very essential part, and the Bible itself encourages us to apply scripture, so we'll spend oh, at least a couple of hours in the area of application. So that's the analogy. Now, you might even take it even further. After an engineer designs, let's say, a highway, then you actually build it. You build it in the field as part of the utilization. That might be analogous to exposition in the uh, hermeneutical area. So there's a clear analogy between the scientific method and what we are doing in the exegetical process. But I'd like to conclude with are some suggestions as we go through this process. I've already mentioned the first one. We want to strive constantly for objectivity. The better observations we make, the more abundant observations that we make, the better will be our conclusions. And I'll expand this further as we talk more about observations, but be as objective as we can, setting aside any ideas that we might want a text to say, or lack of diligence. We want to be uh, diligent to the point that we have all of the data to be very objective in coming to some conclusions. Just a little cartoon here. In terms of uh, objectivity, after a thorough investigation, we have found no evidence of the purported slant in coverage. Uh, that's what the networks will tell you. But the cartoon is that uh, there's a very obvious slant that uh, at least the mainstream media derives. Uh, I don't want to get off on politics, but... Just a little light moment here since we're coming to the end and need to wake up some of you. Secondly, when we do observation and interpretation, at least those two, we want to do those somewhat simultaneous. You want to prioritize observations before you jump to conclusions, but you will go back and forth. You will make a series of observations and then you'll come to some preliminary conclusions. And then you want to make some further observations and continue probing, continue observing, continue looking at more detail. And as you do that, you'll be refining those conclusions and you go back and forth. 
So in actual practice, you'll do this simultaneous. We're going to separate them out. We're going to look at each of them individually. We're going to spend lots of time on observation and try to limit our discussion and limit our uh, our work in the area of observation. Now, when we're done with the course and you put all these together, you don't want to go step by step in that way. What, what you will do is you go back and forth. And sometimes in the middle of making observations, you might come up with, oh, this is something that I probably need to apply. So you might come up with an application, write it down, and you might set it aside for now, and then you come back, and later you might take another look at it, and by then you might have a, a multitude of, of applications that you have drawn. So even though we will separate these out and deal with them individually in actual practice, you'll, you'll go back and forth. Thirdly, I'm going to probably overwhelm all of you with all of the detail that we will go into. Don't get discouraged. Again, in actual practice, you'll be selective. You'll take only some of the principles that are applicable to that particular passage that you're dealing with. You won't deal with everything that we'll talk about here. You won't try to make all of the observations that we'll deal with. But you will make the observations that are needed and adequate in order to understand the particular passage that you're dealing with. So. You'll be overwhelmed, but in actual practice, just remind yourself you're only dealing with what you need in the passage that you're dealing with at that particular time. Fourthly, very important. It's very important. Even if you're not taking this course for credit, I would encourage you to put these principles into practice, the ones that we will develop as we go through this exegetical process. This is a skill. You won't learn it until you put them into practice. I use the analogy of any athletic area, football, basketball. You won't learn basketball until you get on the court and start dribbling the ball and shooting shots and refining your your technique and your skills. Uh, it'll take practice. So also in the exegetical process, you'll have to practice these principles. Fifthly, you'll never exhaust a passage. Remember the finite principle. Uh, we'll get into the detail, and we want to do adequate work. We want to do work that we're not ashamed of. We want to have a high degree of confidence so that on any given occasion when we're teaching the passage, uh, we have a confidence level that uh, we, we feel like we understand that passage. But uh, some students almost go to the extreme and can't quit studying the passage, but will never be able to be exhausted. You only have a certain amount of time, so utilize your time wisely. And just another reminder, this I mentioned as a prerequisite, the need to be filled with the Spirit. And that will we won't mention it all the time. In fact, we might get bogged down in the minutia of the study. But be reminded, we should begin every study in prayer and in dependence of the Holy Spirit, desiring that uh, we have illumination. We're dealing also with the spiritual principle when we talk about that. 
in that we're dealing with a divine book and there are spiritual dimensions that we cannot uh, gain simply by an academic approach. So we need the filling of the Holy Spirit. So next week we'll pick up from there. And next week what I want to begin with is what I describe as preliminary exegesis. And we'll talk about some issues relating to things before we get into an individual passage. Whether it be one sentence or whether it be one paragraph, there's some things that we want to do before we do that, before we start the process, before we get it to verse 1 and start going through the book. There's some things we want to do ahead of time. And the first thing we want to do is a book study. And that'll be the topic that we'll start off with next week. We'll begin with the book study. So that's your introduction to the exegetical process. Next week, we'll get actually into it itself. So before we conclude, any questions or comments? Right. What time do we start next week? Next week, 4 o'clock, and I'll send out, yeah, we'll back back to the regular schedule. Thanks for reminding us, and we'll get back to that regular schedule. I'll send out a reminder. Yeah, I got mixed up when I mentioned that prior announcement. Sorry about that. Any other questions? No questions. Good. Okay, Dane, you want to close for us today? Sure. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and study your word. We ask that you enlighten us with the Holy Spirit that leads into all understanding, that you give us the care to handle your word accurately and carefully, and that uh, you show us through that a deeper understanding of you, that we can apply it to our lives and that we can share that with those around us so that they can deepen their faith with you as well. We ask for a blessing on this week in preparation for our next course, and we ask for clarity of mind as we work through some of our coursework. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, just another reminder I just thought of. Uh, your critique of your reading is due next week, or you can send it during the week if you want to as well. All right. Have a good week. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Thank you.